before we get started today, I just wanted to say hello, a special hello, to the Rock Church up in Squamish. They've been joining us over the last little while as their pastors on sabbatical, so it's great to have you guys with us. Also, uh, Real Life Community Church, which is in Surrey, kind of in the Fleetwood area. A little bit different about uh, that church is that they are joining us as one of our new campuses, and so we're really excited about that and looking forward to seeing what the Lord will do in that part of Surrey in the days ahead as we uh, try to raise up leaders in that area and uh, restore a thriving church there. So great to have you guys with us. And for everybody else, it's great to have you with us, whether you're in Mission or in East Abbotsford or uh, across the Lower Mainland or somewhere far, far away. It's really great to have you guys join us today. We're still in the book of Ecclesiastes, and today we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Before we do that, though, I, I want to show you a video clip. Now, I totally admit that I have kind of gone overboard with the 1990s uh, movie references and TV show references in this particular sermon. I don't know what got a hold of me, but just be prepared for, for that. Um, one of the greatest television shows maybe in history was the show Seinfeld. Everybody probably knows something about Seinfeld, even if you're quite young, you know that it was one of those shows that occurred before The Office and was kind of like The Office before The Office in terms of its popularity and humor. Uh, there's a character in that show named George Costanza who uh, rivals Dwight Schrute as one of the great characters in the history of sitcoms. He is uh, a smarmy little guy who is very selfish and <clears throat> just struggles to focus on anybody else. But there is one episode where he tries to help out uh, an older gentleman. In fact, several of the characters in the show try to help out some older people to show that they are not just all about themselves. Of course, it ends that they are just all about themselves. But in this particular clip that I want to show you, uh, this is a bit of a famous clip where, where George is sitting in a coffee shop with the man that he's tried to, he's, he's chosen to encourage in his in his older age. So, have a look. Oh, I feel great for 85. You know, the average lifespan for an American male is like 72. <laughs> You're really kind of pushing the envelope there. <laughs> I'm not afraid of dying. I never think about it. You don't? Well, I think about it a lot. I think about it at my age. Imagine how much I'll be thinking about it at your age. All I'll do is just keep thinking about it till it drives me insane. I'm grateful for every moment I have. Grateful? How can you be grateful when you're so close to the end? When you know that any second, poof, bam, oh, it could all be over. I mean, you're not stupid. You can read the handwriting on the wall. It's a matter of simple arithmetic, for God's sake. I guess I just don't care. What are you talking about? How can you sit there and look me in the eye and tell me that you're not worried? Don't you have any sense? Don't you have a brain? Are you so completely senile you don't even know what you're talking about anymore? Wait, wait, wait a second, where are you going? Life's too short to waste on you. Please, get out of my way. But, but Mr. Cantwell, you, you owe me for the soup. You know, we laugh at that, at that clip because um, the way that George is approaching this older man is so backwards, right? 
I mean, nobody would ever say that. That's why it's funny. Nobody would ever say to an older man, why in the world aren't you thinking about your death all the time? In fact, we would never say that to anybody. Why aren't you thinking about your death all the time? I think about my death all the time. Somebody who said that to us, we'd say, man, you, you need to get some help. Maybe you need to get some professional help. What's really interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes, especially in chapter 7, is actually uh, Kohelet, the Hebrew word for teacher, and the guy who's, who's preaching, basically, in this section, he actually sounds a lot like George Costanza. He, his big argument in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is, why don't you think more about death? Yeah, I know that you like thinking about parties and you like thinking about the positive elements of life, but why don't you think more about death? In fact, thinking about death is a really good thing. So when you read the passage, the first four verses of Ecclesiastes 7, they kind of are an upside-down sort of approach to things. Uh, I want to I do that in the next little bit. You probably know some people in your life who are kind of what I call actually people. Actually people are, you know, the, the ones in your life who... When you, when you make a statement about something that you're pretty confident is true, they say, well, actually, and then they, then they go with the opposite viewpoint. Uh, you know what? I really like the Seahawks. Well, actually, the Seahawks are the worst team ever. And then they'll give you the evidence for it, which is easy to find, of course. Um, did you know that uh, the moon is this distance away from the Earth? Well, actually, it's actually this distance. In fact, I know these things because I'm basically Google. There's lots of actually people around. They, they tend to zag when you zig. This is a section of Ecclesiastes where Kohelet is trying to become that actually person. He's, he's saying, look, I know that you think death is a really bad thing. You shouldn't think about it. But actually, imagine if you did think about it, what kind of benefits that you would have. And so this is kind of an upside-down wisdom from Kohelet here. And in it, I just want to take kind of three steps with these four verses. First, he's going to make the argument that funerals are better than parties, that frustration is better than laughter. And then finally, I want to ask the question, okay, what do we find then in funerals and frustrations? If they're so great, what is it that they are teaching us? So funerals are better than parties, frustration is better than laughter, and what do we find then in funerals? And frustrations. Here's the first of those, the first two verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Let's stop there. That's obviously verse 1. The good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Um, that little phrase, a good name, is better than perfume is difficult one to, to understand. Um, lots of different commentators have tried to figure out what in the world he means. I think that the best way to understand this, given the fact that it's tied to the day of death and the day of birth, is, is this, that perfume is full of promise, right? I mean, it, if you smell somebody who smells really good, you're walking behind them on the street, and you see, you know, you're walking a single guy, and you're walking behind this woman, a single woman, and she's, she smells lovely. There is a kind of promise that that, that that brings. You're kind of intrigued. Wow, I mean, if she smells that good, maybe she's, she's good in all the ways. You know, maybe she's a fantastic person. Maybe, but, but 
you don't know any of that other stuff. The person who smells really good might be the worst woman that you've ever met. She might be terrible. All you have when you smell the perfume is, is promise, is potential. Uh, the, so a good name is better than perfume in the sense that perfume is just promise, but a good name is something that you earn over time. It's fulfilled promise, right? Like one of those is more revealing than the other. Perfume doesn't reveal a whole lot about a person, but a good name reveals a lot about them. Similarly, the day of birth, he says, he said the day of death is better than the day of birth. The day of birth doesn't really reveal an awful lot about a person, but the day of their death does. The day of their death is at the end of the, of the line, and you can look back and say, well, this person either had a good name or a bad name. You know lots and lots of things about that person. It's, it's very revealing, the day of death. But the day of birth, similar to perfume, it, it, it holds promise. I mean, you, you think, hey, the baby's come out. It's, I hope that he turns out to be, you know, then name your favorite person in the history. I hope he turns out to be Martin Luther King. I hope that he turns out to be, you know, the, the Tiger Woods. I hope he turns out to be, you know, the best Tom Brady, whatever. But you don't know that at the time. All you, all, it's just potential. But when Tom Brady dies, or Tiger Woods dies, or Martin Luther King died, you can look back on their life and you can say, but yes, but the promise was, was fulfilled. We know way more about that person. It's more revealing. The day of their death is more revealing. So you see the, see the point that he's getting at, basically, is that death reveals more than birth does. So he goes on in verse 2 to actually kind of build on that. He says, okay, so it's better then to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. So a house of mourning and a house of feasting. A house of mourning is uh, basically a funeral, right? And a house of feasting is a party. So you can imagine yourself in this, in a situation where, you know, maybe on a, on a given Monday, you're, you're asked by a friend, hey, this Friday, uh, would you be willing to come to the party that I'm throwing on Friday night? It's going to be a great blast. We're going to have all sorts of great things there. A lot of the friends that you have are going to be there. It's going to be great. And then on the Tuesday, uh, you have another person in your life who dies. And they say, well, the funeral is going to be on Friday. And so you've got a decision to make now. Do I go to the funeral or do I go to the party? Now, I'm going to tell you that everything in your heart is likely going to be pushing you toward the party. You might be obligated to go to the funeral, but where do you want to go? Well, probably the party. I want to go to the party because funerals are dour. Funerals are sad. And most of the time, we don't want to thrust ourselves into that kind of situation where we think about that kind of thing. We'd much rather go to a party where we can just think about, you know, the party stuff. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a distraction, the party. Kohelet's argument here is that a party, though, teaches you nothing about life. That even though you want to go to the party, the reason you want to go to the party is because it's kind of like cotton candy fluff, but the funeral's going to be like steak. It's actually going to cause you to think and teach you something that is very valuable in your life, whereas parties don't, they don't do that. I sometimes, when it comes to distractions, uh, find myself 
wanting desperately to have them uh, these days. And the world is going crazy around us. And um, I have found myself uh, watching sports actually as a way to distract from all those, all, all those things. I found a year ago really difficult because they kind of canceled all the sports. And so I didn't have any distractions. So in the end, all you had to do is think about COVID and think about the quarantine and think about all the things that were going wrong. But as soon as sports started back up, I was like, okay, at least I have a release valve. At least I got a place that I can go and I can watch something and not be totally invested in it and just kind of let it you know, wash over me so I'm not thinking about the rest of the world. That's what sports are for me. They're, they serve as a distraction. And so if you came to me and say, hey, let's talk about this really deep thing, sometimes I'd be like, can we instead just watch the game, right? Because I don't want to think about that really, that really hard thing. Some people have a distraction in other, in other ways. Some people use parties to distract them from the difficult things in life. Some people use shopping, right? They, they, call, it, you know, um, they call it retail therapy. I'm going to go to the, the shop and I'm going to buy whatever it is that I want to buy. And it's going to be great. And I'm going to feel better because at least I have a new shirt. Some people get into novels this way or video games. It takes them into another world where they don't need to pay attention to the stuff around them. And they, they sometimes can't wait to get back to the couch where they can pick up their video con game controller and get back into that, the story of, of the game. Or uh, they can't wait to sit back down and open the book up and, and read uh, about the love story that they're reading about. We all have these kinds of distractions and given a choice between the distraction and something serious, like a funeral, we will almost always choose the distraction. In fact, that's the way that we've learned to cope with life. Kohelet is trying to argue with us to say, you need to not distract yourself so much with those things. There's nothing wrong with the distraction, but you need to focus on what sorrow and what death can teach you. Because he says, death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Why is it better to go to the house of mourning than, than the house of feasting? Because death is, is waiting for all of us, and we should take that to heart. We should learn from our in, impending, sure death. Don't turn away from it. Problem, of course, is uh, we don't take it to heart. We, we don't face death. We don't recognize the fact that we all, we all die. Instead, um, we might mentally assent to that, but in our lives, we actually do lots of things to try to avoid thinking about it. Like I said, the distractions, but you know, we're just not well acquainted with death in the 21st century West. And the first time I ever saw a dead body in my life was when I was um, as a youth pastor in uh, Eastern Washington State. Probably I would have been 22 years old. So up to that point, never seen a dead body, which is, you know, that, that's uncommon in the history of mankind. Lots and lots of people, by the time they're 22, would have seen quite a few dead bodies. But in our culture, we kind of keep kids away from it, away from death and away from corpses and things. So when I was 22, I saw my, the first dead body. It was in a casket that I, I was helping with a funeral at the church that I was, I was working at. And um, the, the, the casket was brought in. And my job was to open the top of the casket. You know, it's like broken into two. I was supposed to open the top section of the casket when it was rolled down 
in front of everyone. So I did. Got out in the front, quiet in the room, and I opened the casket up, and there was this, this woman, an older woman with lots of makeup on, uh, but clearly dead. And I froze. I, I, didn't, I didn't really know what to do, what to do with that. Uh, my father-in-law, who was the pastor who was overseeing the, the ceremony, walked past me and kind of gave me a weird look, like, are you going to be standing here staring at the corpse for the rest of the time, or are you going to sit down? So I looked him in the eye, and I, was, I remember feeling a sense of shock, and I sat down kind of over to the side. And the rest of the, the, rest of the, the funeral, I just couldn't get this idea that, that I was that close to a dead body out of my mind. It was the closest I'd ever come to experiencing the reality of death. I was to experience a lot more of it, to be honest. When I lived, when I was there, uh, the house that we had, the apartment we had was above a morgue. And uh, I think I've shared with you before in the middle of the night, you would hear the, the garage door open and that meant that somebody had died in the area and the mortician was going out and he was going to come back and uh, he was going to dress the body up in the next few days. When I would pay my rent, I would always have to take it downstairs to the funeral office. And the, it was one guy, he had in his job, it was, it was a one-man show, he would do all the stuff for the, for the funerals. And sometimes I would go into the office and he wouldn't be there, so I had to walk in the back. His name was Walt, and I'd start calling his name, Walt, Walt, Walt. And there were several rooms in the back where he would do the, he would do the embalming, right? It smelled like formaldehyde, and uh, he would put on the makeup on the bodies. And so it was not, it was not frequent, but it also... It was not infrequent that I would walk in on him while he was, while he was you know, doing a body up. And I, I would stand there and just stare at, at, these, at these bodies because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe that people actually had, had died. And some of them would be sitting there and they wouldn't have their makeup on or anything. And it's, death is gruesome. I, had, I, I know it sounds silly, but it, I had no idea about it. When my mom died, uh, I had to go in. Afterwards, they called us on the phone. I had left actually just to go have a shower from the hospital, and she died when, when I left. So we came back, me and so, my family came back, and we were, we were you know, stand, standing in the room while her, her hair was combed back, and her body was laying on this, on this uh, you know, gurney, and each one of us took our turns to go and hold her hand. I remember leaning over and kissing my mom on the forehead, and she was bone cold. And that just shocked me. I had, I had never touched my mother ever before where she was, she was cold like that. Like it, death just shocks us in the West. We don't, we don't know what to do with it. And that's because most of our lives, we've, we've kept it very much at bay. We, we don't think about it. We don't spend time around people who are dead. We tell our children, don't look when so-and-so dies. Don't, you don't need to come to the funeral. I mean, it might be difficult for you to handle. We don't ask you to, kids to do that. And so they spend most of their lives staying away, away from death the best we can. Until, of course, they do what I do, and they ended up, end up seeing it, and it shocks, shocks their system. I actually think that you can see this kind of difficulty with death in the way that we're handling some of the COVID information. I mean, on, on websites now, they have like a COVID tracker where this is how many deaths happen. This is, you know, it's a rolling number around the world. It's, and people are really freaked out and scared. 
And COVID is a, is a, is a dangerous virus, but it's not heart disease. Like if you have a tracker going on about heart disease, that's like the number one killer in almost everywhere. People have been dying for years prior to 2020, but now all of a sudden we're kind of realizing, wait a minute, people, people die? People in nursing homes especially die? It's like it's news to us. And that's probably because death has been held at bay. Or to say it another way, we, we, we like our castic, caskets closed. We prefer our corpses alive. We prefer our kids at home for funerals. We, we shield our eyes from death. But Kohelet is saying here that it, that's to our detriment. Funerals are actually better than parties in what they can teach you. So that's the first point he makes. Look, funerals are better than parties. And second, frustration is better than laughter. So look at verse 3 with me. Frustration is better than laughter. There's that line. Because a sad face is good for the heart. That word frustration is an interesting one in, in the scriptures. Uh, it's a word that's used for, uh, to describe what I'd call angry sorrow. So you're sad, but you're frustrated about your sadness. Your sadness is being caused by another. So you're sad about the situation, but you're also a little bit ticked off because of the people who are causing it to happen to you. So the word is used, uh, there's a woman in scripture named Hannah, and she can't bear children, but her, the, the wife, uh, even back in those days, uh, some of these patriarchs had two wives, and uh, the patriarch, he, he had another wife, and her name was Panina. So Hannah and Panina, Panina had all the kids, and in those days, that made you a success as a woman, and had a hat, she was barren. And so Panina would mock Hannah, would call her names, and, and point out in public that she was childless, which of course meant that God didn't like her as much as he liked Panina, who had lots of kids. And the scriptures, when, when it describes Hannah's feelings, it says that she was frustrated by Panina. That's the language that's used here. She was frustrated by Panina for mocking her for having no kids. So it's, she's sad, of course, because of the situation of not having kids, but she's also kind of angry at, at Panina. That, that word frustrating is used in Proverbs 21, 19. Listen to the proverb. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. That word nagging is the same word here, frustrating wife. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and frustrating wife, the one that causes you angry sorrow. You're sad that she's nagging you all the time, but you're also you know, kind of ticked off that this is the way that she, she handles. So ticked off that you, it would be better for you to go and live in the desert. So his argument here is that angry sorrow, you've all had that feeling before, I know you have. Even right now, there are things that you can point to in your life where you're like, okay, Angry, I have an angry sorrow. And, and usually when that angry sorrow comes upon you, you, you think to yourself, I've got to distract myself away from it because it just gets me riled up and it makes me have a sad face. So I've got to get away from it. But Kohelet is saying here that angry sorrow, in fact, is better than joyous laughter. Why? Well, he says a sad face is good for the heart. 
In other words, uh, frustration, right, angry sorrow, and the sad face that it produces, it forces us to think more deeply about our lives. Like you want the distraction so you don't have to think about it, but if you start to think about that angry sorrow, you can go down the rabbit hole and start thinking deeply about your situation and your life, and what's prompting you is the angry sorrow. Just like death prompts you to consider your life, so does angry sorrow and suffering and frustration cause you to consider your life. You can imagine um, that... uh, you can imagine that, that you had uh, an opportunity to go to a comedy night. And you go to it, and it's a great comedy, and uh, lots of fun, and the comedian was great on that night, and lots of people laughing. And you come home. You're a bit tired, and so you lay your head on the bed. I would, I would imagine that you would have no trouble falling to sleep that evening. Right? You've had all those endorphins going through your body because of the laughter. But let's say the next day you have a terrible relational problem. Maybe it's at work, or maybe it's with your spouse, or maybe it's your child. There's some kind of rupture that happened during the day relationally that has caused you angry sorrow. And so as you lay down to sleep that night, I imagine it's much more difficult to sleep that night than it was the night after the comedy event. That's kind of what Kohelet is saying here. That, that, that angry sorrow causes you to stay up at night. That angry sorrow is not like laughter. Laughter it will, is easy. It's like cotton candy. It, it, you know, it's great. It comes and it goes. But angry sorrow makes you reflect. And so for that reason, it, 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 it's actually better to be frustrated. Verse 4, he says, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Okay, so we got a couple houses again. We have the house of mourning, again, a funeral, and the house of pleasure we take to be basically the house of laughter that was earlier, like a party, okay? So in other words, he's saying that your heart, which is a word that means the center of a person's attention, uh, it, to place my heart on something is to consider it deeply. So there's a passage actually in, in Exodus where Pharaoh is trying to match the, the acts of, of Moses um, and, and his God, you know, one of the plagues that he brings on Egypt. And the magicians from, from, uh, from Egypt say, well, we can match the thing that happened here. So in Exodus 7, verse 22 and 23, it says, but the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart, there's his heart, he became hard. And he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, verse 23, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. There's that, the language. It's the same language that you find in this passage. He didn't take it to heart. In other words, he didn't think about it. His his heart was hard, and so he distracted himself with something else, and he didn't consider it. Deeply, He didn't make it the center of his attention. And so when, when it says that the heart is in the house of mourning or a heart is in the house of pleasure, it, it's a house, if your heart in the house of mourning means that I consider the importance of death. I think deeply about it and what that death tells me. 
To, be, to have your heart in the house of pleasure means you don't think about death at all. The house, you're thinking about the pleasure. You're thinking just about that, that other kind of thing. And he's saying that, listen, one of those is a great teacher and the other one is not. The pleasure is not a great teacher. The mourning, the death, the funeral, that's a great teacher. You can hear him repeating the point. That's a great teacher. When I was younger, I remember uh, being in high school and I had uh, a PE class that was, it was great. I, I really enjoyed PE a lot, usually because it was kind of a break during the day. We played this game called Super Ball, and if I tried to explain it to you, I don't know even know if I can. It was kind of a mixture between football and soccer, and uh, it was great fun. We, we'd play out in the field and blow off some steam and things like that. I remember an English class immediately after it. I remember having come in, you know, dry yourself off or whatever from, from sweating so much, and you go into your English class, and I was still drawing off and stuff, but I remember that I had to focus a lot in English class because uh, it was teaching me argumentation and reading and writing skills and these sorts of things. I, it would not have been hard for you to tell me at that time that, Jeff, if you want to succeed in life, you should have your heart set on English. You should, you should have your heart in the house of English and not in the house of PE. There's nothing wrong with PE, it's fantastic and stuff, but it comes and goes. It's sort of just a, hey, it's great. But, but English has an ability to teach you more. And this is, this is his point. This is his point. Most of us want to be in PE. <laughs> it's easier, simpler, we don't stress out about it, but English is where you're going to learn. Funerals are where you're going to learn. Death is where you're going to learn. So there's nothing wrong with pleasure, this is the point. Nothing wrong with pleasure, it's great, but it won't teach us the same thing that death and mourning will. So you get, the, you get the point, it's very repetitive in the end. That death is great, he says. Facing it, I mean. Looking it into the eye and saying, I'm going to die because it's going to teach you something. So then you have to ask the question, okay, well what? Like what is it gonna teach you? So in this final little bit, I, I wanna think about that for a minute. What do we find? in funerals and frustrations. Well, what, is, what does it teach us? Well, I've got a few things that I, I think you can point out. One of them is that it reorders our priorities. Like looking at death makes us consider whether or not we have put the right things in the right place in our lives. You know, are the most important things actually being treated as most important or are we treating them as less important? My wife and I <coughs> uh, have been in a few occasions where we've been riding in a car together and, and I, I, for some, somehow we, we escaped death. I mean, if you've driven enough in your life, you, you, you've gotten close to a car accident or you've been in a car accident and you sometimes look at it and you think, how did, I, how, did I, how did I get through that? I didn't even know. I remember one occasion we were driving out from where she lived in Bellingham when we were uh, just in, at the end of our college days and she, she was driving and we pulled out uh, of an intersection into a, a kind of into an area that was a pretty, it wasn't highly trafficked, but people would go pretty fast down the, the crossroad. And so we started to pull out and she didn't apparently see this, I remember it was a, like it was yesterday, it was a, a beige Subaru come just flying down the road and she pulled out right in front of it. It was an icy morning in the winter and I remember, I'm on the passenger side, and I remember the car, the guy's face in the car, like, freak out. He turned the wheel so hard that his car slid completely sideways, so it was now parallel to ours. We were stopped. 
and somehow he whipped the car out in front of ours. So he, he kind of just went to the back end here and then he whipped out. It almost feels like, you know, it's against the law of physics that it went there. But I remember my entire life went before my eyes while I was sitting there in the passenger seat of this car. It's not the last time I've been driving left with my wife and that, that's happened. Anyway, I, but you've probably had moments like that where, where you've been so close to death. And of course, what happens after that? There's this moment of clarity that comes upon you and you think to yourself, uh, I could have died today. Have I lived my life in such a way that I've made the important things important enough and the less important things less important? Or have I been wasting my time on all sorts of stupid things and all this time? That's what happens when, when you have near death. I said earlier that I was going to mention a bunch of 1990s movies and TV shows. So You've Got Mail is a famous, a lot of people would still see it. It's like, oh, we love it. It's a, it's a love story and stuff. Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan. There's a scene in that movie where uh, they get caught in an elevator, not, not Meg Ryan. Tom Hanks and his then-girlfriend are caught in an elevator with a few other people. And they're sitting in this elevator and they start talking about, they're stuck in the elevator, and they start talking about what happens if we never get out. And they kind of go around in the circle and they start reflecting on their lives. And the reason Tom Hanks ends up not liking the girl he's with and turns his attention to Meg Ryan is because the girl he's with isn't, isn't taking the opportunity to reflect. She's so worried about her nails in the middle of the elevator where other people are saying, I, I need to go and make things right with my dad. I need to go and I need to go and hug my mom. I need to call my mom. These relationships that I've let go for all this time I need to do, that's what happens when you, when you face death, when you think that death is just in the offing, or you consider it, and you stare deep in its eyes, you start to reorient your uh, priorities. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And if you never look at death in the eyes, if you never think that it's, it's inevitable for you, you will never receive the benefit of its teaching of its reorienting of your priority. When, when you're on your deathbed and you have an opportunity to think, what are you going to, in that moment, be happy you did? What risks will you be happy that you took? And what things will you regret? Will you think to yourself, man, I shouldn't have done that. I've sat in some meetings before where I thought to myself, on my deathbed, I will think that this was a waste of time. <laughs> like I've spent time sitting here listening to this conversation and it's not doing anything. Well, that's what death does. It ends up forcing you into thinking about those things. If you don't consider death, we lose out on those clarifying moments. So death reorders our priorities. Second, it also forces us to see our real place in the world. And by that, I mean that we're not as long-standing as we think we are. We, we are not as important as we think we are. Death has a way of humbling everybody. You might think you're the greatest basketball player, or the greatest pitcher, or you're the greatest singer, or you're the most beautiful person. Hey, guess what? Everybody dies, and no one's going to remember you in the end. Ah, they might for a little while, but they're not actually going to remember you. So the Bible has lots of places where it emphasizes the brevity of life. So you get uh, in Psalm 103, verse 15 and 16, it says, the life, the life of mortals is like grass. 
They flourish like a flower of the field, and the wind blows over it, and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. That's what's your life of mortal. You're like there grass that withers up and, and dies, and then it, it's like chaff that gets blown away. Inconsequential, for the most part. Psalm 144, verses 3 and 4. Lord, what are human beings that you care for them, mere mortals that you think of them? They're like a breath. Their days are like a fleeting shadow. One life. Two lives. Short. Exhaled as quickly as you inhaled. Brief. Fleeting. There's a story that, that I have read years ago that sticks in my mind when I think about this sort of thing. It's about Louis XIV, who was considered like one of the greatest rulers in France's history. In 1750, this is how the story is written, in 1750, King Louis XIV of France died after his reign of 72 years. He had called himself the Great, so Louis the Great. And he was the monarch who made the, the famous statement, I am the state, meaning that the country is basically, I'm, I'm as important as anything. There's no government, this is me. His court was the most magnificent in Europe at the time, and his funeral was equally spectacular. As his body lay in state in a golden coffin, orders were given that the cathedral should be very dimly lit with only a special candle set above his coffin. And it was to dramatize his greatness. So no lights on anywhere, but just a single candle above his coffin. He's the, he is the one who lights everything up, was the image. So at the memorial, thousands waited in hushed silence. And then Bishop Massillon, who's overseeing the proceedings, he, he, he began to speak. And slowly reaching down, he snuffed out the candle, looked at the rest of the people in the room and said, only God is great. Yeah. Even the greatest kings and queens and most famous people who we think are making such a huge difference in the world right now, and no one will ever forget them. Only God is great. That's what death teaches us. So this last year, um, you ever seen the Academy Awards and they do this little section called In Memoriam? Uh, it's like, hey, who, who has passed away in the, in the area of film and theater in the last year? Let's, let's show their pictures on, the, on a screen and then we'll all, at the end, he's, he's celebrating the people whose lives have, have passed and the work that they did uh, while they were alive. So I actually looked it up and, and the, here are the people in 2020, here are the people who passed away. Uh, deaths include Kobe Bryant, Michael Douglas, James Lipton, uh, you might not know him as well. He's, he's the guy who ran the Inside the Actors studio. Kenny Rogers, the gambler. Roy Horn, uh, he's the second half of Siegfried and Roy, the magicians in Las Vegas. Little Richard. Jerry Stiller, speaking of Seinfeld, that's, that's, he was on Seinfeld. He was George's father in Seinfeld, or Ben Stiller's dad, real dad. Eddie Van Halen. Sean Connery, Charlie Daniels, 
Regis Philbin, Charlie Daniels is a, is a country western star. It's Regis Philbin of Regis and Kathy Lee and then Regis and whoever else now, Kelly or whoever it is. Wilford Brimley, it's a good thing. Chadwick Boseman, Black Panther. Sean Connery and Alex Trebek. And that's a pretty good list of people who think that they're really important in this world. We, you and I would think that we're really important in this world. They've done some magnificent things. I think Kobe Bryant probably changed the game of basketball significant. Sean Connery was the greatest 007. What would the world be without Jeopardy? And Alec Trebek. But as quickly as they came, they, they left. Most of them didn't plan to die last year, but they did. Because they don't control death. Death stalks everyone. We appear for a little while and then we vanish. And for all our bluster, we, we don't last long here and we control very little. Death forces us then to see our real place in the world. And finally, death raises questions about what's next. So there's this story in uh, Luke's Gospel where it goes like this, Jesus is telling a parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, this rich man, what shall I do? I have, I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and, and there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, by the way, notice how many times this guy likes to talk to himself about himself, myself and I'm here with myself. Like, it's remarkable. And I'll say to myself, in Greek here, it says, Self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. But, but God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then, then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. What's the guy's problem? Well, one, he didn't consider that there was God. He was always just focused on himself, and he didn't plan on being... He, wasn't, he was rich toward himself because that's all he was focused on, and he wasn't rich toward God. But the reason he wasn't rich toward God is because he didn't think death was a thing, or at least he didn't live like it. The big turn in the story is the entrance of death. And God calls him, you, you fool, don't you know you're going to die? And after that, then what? Like all the stuff that you've provided for yourself, all of the money that you spent, you spent on yourself, but you didn't spend it on being rich toward God. And now what really matters? The wealth you gain for yourself or your riches toward God. And that's the point that... After death lies the judgment. If you don't look squarely in the eyes of death, but instead focus so much on the distractions of our world, you will miss out on the, the most important opportunity of your life, and that is to consider your eternal well-being. What happens after it? Listen, I only know of one person in the history of the world who's gone past death and come back to give a testimony about it. His name is Jesus. He died, came back, said, I defeated death by rising again from the grave. And then he says, by faith in me, 
by coming and following me, by laying down your former manner of life and turning toward me and committing yourself to follow me, you too can have a resurrection life. You too can defeat death. You can mock death as Paul does. Death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? But in order to have that happen, you've got to look squarely in the eyes of death. Look, I began with a reference to a 90s TV show. How about a late 80s one? A movie. Indiana Jones, I'll finish with this. Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade is, one of, is the great, greatest Indiana Jones film. But there's a scene in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade where one of the protectors of the, uh, of the, of the cup of Christ, which is where they go in the end, but uh, one of the protectors of it is chasing, ch chasing Indiana around a harbor in a boat. And they jump on uh, the same boat and they start fighting each other, but their boat starts getting chopped up by, a, by the propeller of a, of a big tanker. And as the propeller's chopping the boat up, Indiana Jones says to the guy, they're kind of locked in, in a battle, and Indiana Jones says, says if you keep, keep holding me, we're, we're going to both die. And the guy looks him in the eyes, the protector of, uh, of the cup of Christ, and he says, my soul's prepared. How's yours? Man, I, I feel like Kohelet is asking you that question. Don't miss the opportunity to look at death. Don't shrink back from it. From it. Don't distract yourself from it. My soul's prepared. How's yours? Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful, Father, the answer to the question about what do we do is that we turn to you in faith. We, we, as Scripture says, we pound our chest and say, have mercy on us sinners. We don't control a death. We don't control our lives. We're not as important as we say. Help us not to shrink back from looking at the things that are hard, from our suffering and learning the lesson, from the pain and the suffering and the funerals and the death that happens all around us. Help us to look at squarely and recognize that it's teaching us something, something about life here and now and our priorities, but ultimately of life forevermore. So I pray, Father, for those who are listening to me who, who don't know you, whose soul is not prepared that they would look squarely at death and they would be prepared and that your spirit would do a great work in their hearts so that it would turn to you and be saved. And for those of us who have been saved, Father, help us to reorient our priorities, a realizing where that one day we will all die and that in that day, on our deathbeds, Father, we want to look back on our lives and say we risked everything for Jesus. We gave her everything we could because he alone is worth it. And we pray it in his name. Amen.